Welcome back to another episode of the Liberation Lab podcast, insights and interviews for the disruptive educator. I am your host, Bobby, and I'm excited to dive into this episode on fighting the unseen. At the time of this recording, there are many educators faced with the overwhelming duties of the task at hand, whether that be mandates from central administration, whether that be the things that your principal is handing down, it just seems like we're being swamped with task after task that just checks the box of compliance, but doesn't really move the needle in terms of educational justice. And the funny thing about pain, right? Pain has the effect of making you only see yourself. It functions as a microscope, if you will, and it helps you zero in or, or it causes you to zero in on your feelings. And as you zero in on your feelings, you function as if no one else really matters or is affected by what you're affected by. Pain causes you to only see yourself. And, and, and I think that that is emblematic of a larger situation that we're dealing with in education. And that is teachers are consistently in a place where they are trying to survive a system that is affecting them. And the tall order at hand is seeing that they are, that we educators are not the only ones affected by this system. As a matter of fact, in 2017, a study uh, revealed that 61% of teachers found that their job is just stressful. And 58% cited that, that there was poor mental health as a result of job related stress. I mean, we see it. The writing's on the wall. Teachers are leaving the profession in droves. We don't have as many people getting into education related fields in college. You go on to TikTok and all you see are educators who are complaining about the the state of things. It's truly hard out here. And then on top of that, teachers are struggling with almost a secondary traumatic stress where you take on the wounds of the students that you serve. Toxic masculinity, poverty, abuse, homophobia, and the list goes on. This is very real for me. I had a student in my office just the other day and we were talking about the choices that he made and how he was talking to his teacher, where it was coming from. I really try to get to the root causes of behavior because a lot of my kids come in and they exhibit things that will be labeled as disrespectful and the child is only doing what they know. So I try to get beyond the labeling of the action and get to and try to get to what's what's behind that. And as I was talking to this student, uh, it was him and his friend. And I have a relationship with both of them. I said to the friend, can you just look at me real quick? I just I want to hear if you're, you're telling me the truth. Look at me. Look at me and say the same thing. The, the student, his friend. So there's two of them. The other student replies, yo, that's gay. And I'm floored by this, not, not just because he chose to use that verbiage, right? That's the reality there. 
indoctrinated in this hyper masculinity that says that anything that seems feminine or other is gay and they use gay as this slur but more than that there was no drawback there was no function of let me watch what i'm saying in the principal's office and when i called this student's parent they repeated the same thing to their parent it sticks with me because it shows us what we're up against it shows us that there is a sense in which our babies are continually taking in messages and then replaying them out. And if our response is to act as a microscope and zero in on only what we're experiencing, we will never change the system that is affecting us all or, or toxic masculinity. I literally will have students who will fight each other to prove they're not quote unquote Turkey. I'm not Turkey. Their way of saying they're not scared. And they feel like they have to prove their worth, their dignity, their value, their social capital depends on whether or not they can prove to someone else that they're not Turkey. And while all of this is going on, the hard sell is that our system of education has us believing that it is an us versus them kind of situation. Either I survive or they survive, but we can't have it both ways. I, when I first start, started in uh, school leadership, I had teachers asking me the question, are you for students or are you for teachers? Can you imagine the situation or the conundrum that that puts me in? Because the answer one way is putting me at the detriment or the disdain of the other. There is a choice that is being continuously fed to us in education that we have to choose one or the other. My answer is always yes. I'm, I'm for teachers and yes, I'm for students. And I refuse to believe that I have to choose one. Matter of fact, I believe being for one is being for the other. What this causes in us is that we're so busy fighting each other that we won't enter the ring for the fight for equity. We're worried about whether or not we get certain access and certain resources or certain things or certain or, or, or considerations. We're worried about compliance and I get it in a very, very real way. Just the other day, I had to send an email for lesson plans. And let me, be, let me be careful here. I understand that lesson plans, you know, we have to do it for compliance measures. But I've seen the most immaculate lesson plans drawn up and copied and pasted and are AI crafted. And then you go into the classroom and then you see the most horrible teaching. So we can't equate lesson plans to great teaching. But yet and still, I have to comply. I have to keep my job. I got to feed my family. I got to do these things. And so many of us are feeling the same weight and pressure. But here's, here's the rub for us. I believe the number one reason that we won't enter the ring for the fight for equity is our inability or resistance to anti-racism. There's that word again. I know. It became popular 
2020, I know we haven't said it in a while, but it's still there and it's still true. Educator, you will not confront what you won't see. And here's the context. The context is such that you are fighting the biggest problems in this country one student at a time. Injustice, inequity, um, racism, poverty. Every student comes in with a story affected by some level of abuse or affected by some level of privilege that maybe they're not stewarding, stewarding correctly. And let me let me pause here and say that we must be very, very careful. We must be very, very careful in how we pathologize black and brown communities. It is not everyone's story that they are coming from some impoverished or underserved background. Now, with that being said, we understand that the systems in our country have created conditions of harm that are replicated and seen most prominently in black and brown communities. AKA the hood is not an accident. It is an intentional effort of these yet to be United States to continue to harm black and brown communities. So educator, you're facing these problems one student at a time and you're doing it with little to no emotional support. And while educators of color feel this present pain of racism and need therapy and healing, white educators, you must confront this within yourself. I just said a whole lot just now, so let me pause and let me unpack a couple of things. First, we must understand the terms. When I talk about racism, I am talking about a, it, it is an ideology, right? It is, it is a level of, of privilege and power. It is the ability to take your ideology and play, put it into action and legalize it. The ability to remove whole groups of people from opportunity because you feel like someone who looks different than you isn't equal to you. It is prejudice plus power. I'm going to say it again. It is prejudice plus power. So can anybody be prejudiced? Absolutely. But does everybody have the power to enact their prejudice? No, there is one group of people in these yet to be United States who has the power to do that. So I want to be very careful because every time we get into these discussions, people are like, oh, my gosh, you're saying that certain people can't be racist. Yes, by definition, there is. There are there is one group of people who have the opportunity to be racist in this country because there is one group of people who have the power. And so. This is why I say white educators, you must confront it within yourself. Oh, but Bobby, I never did X, Y and Z. I never took part in X, Y and Z. Agreed. Maybe you never enslaved anybody. Maybe you never had. um Maybe you don't have a racist bone in your body. Maybe. 
but you've been breathing in the smog, if you will, of a system that will continue to push out these beliefs. And you won't see it unless you unplug and do something different. One of my favorite movies uh, is Inception. Leonardo DiCaprio. And the reason that it's one of my favorite movies is because it really causes you to think. The premise of the movie is that there are folks who are working to put, uh, to use your dreams and plant thoughts in your mind. And, and as you journey with this team, who's going to place this thought to get this uh, code or this passcode or whatever out of this person, they go within the dream. And Leonardo DiCaprio has this device. Everybody has one. And, o- and only you know it. And Leonardo DiCaprio's device is this top and he spins it. When he spins it, if it keeps spinning, he's in a dream. If it stops spinning, he knows he's in reality. The question on the table for us as we watch the movie is, is it still a dream or is it reality? And we're left questioning it all the way through the movie up until the end. Here's my point. Oftentimes, white educators do not step into the fight for equity because sometimes we're asleep. We don't know what reality is because sometimes for some of my majority uh, counterparts, we won't see the battles that we're facing because we think we have an understanding of the country. We think we have an understanding of what faces people or we have bought into certain terms. We've bought into certain ideologies, things like meritocracy. Meritocracy is a myth. Now, in an ideal world, sure, people who work hard should be afforded the opportunity. I have no problem saying that. But our world is less than ideal. And I have met the hardest working and smartest people who can't get the same opportunity strictly because poverty has affected them differently than other people. And unless we grapple with that reality, unless we understand that we're not self-made and that we have whole systems and privileges that have afforded us opportunities, we won't get into the ring because we won't see anything wrong. When I'm working with a school or speaking on the topics of educational justice or anti-racism, white educators will come up to me and acknowledge their need to do more. But the question always comes up. What does that look like? How do I do more? And I suggest all the time that it is healing that is moving toward an anti-racist action. Healing that is moving towards anti-racist action. What do I mean? First, healing. I love what my sis Maisha said last week. Healing is a process of learning and unlearning. This means that for many of us, we need to understand that we need humility about how we go about things. There are so many of us who um, who will not step into this work because we believe we understand. We believe we know it all. We believe we got it down. We must be committed to a radical humility that says, 
I don't know and I'm willing to learn. And here's the here's the problem that I see, right? Is we want our students to step up to the plate and to and to continuously embody a learner stance, but we as educators feel like we have it all figured out. No. There's so much more. And so we need to be committed to a radical humility. But anti-racist educators also truly believe in love. There are so many educators that will operate out of the stance of, I love my students. But there are many harmful and violent teachers that say exactly the same thing. I love my students. It is anti-racist educators who know that love and silence are antithetical to one another. Love that should be the foundation from which we do all things is not met with or is not embodied by a passivity or an action. Love is a verb. Love is sharp. It is it is truth telling. It is fighting for what is right. It is doing what is right. Love means that we must do the work of acknowledging what this country has intentionally done to us all. What it continues to do to particularly black bodies. And that love compels us in our practice. If you are an anti-racist educator, you know that love compels you to speak up. You have the burden and the opportunity to leave the world a better place than, the, than how you found it by choosing to operate in a love that says, I will speak up for those whose voices are being silenced. I will center those who are on the margins. But not only that, anti-racist educators, they are committed to deepening their critical consciousness. You must be a lifelong learner. This is where that radical humility comes from. It comes from reading, studying, deepening your scholarship, again, from humility, from listening and engaging with others, from examining and re-examining your own ideology, belief, and truths. If you are seeking to become anti-racist, it means that you acknowledge that things are deeply nuanced and complex, and there is a deliberate design of racism in, the United, in these yet-to-be-United States. You must be willing to commit to a lifestyle of studying what racism looks like in all its forms, particularly in how it enacts itself in our schools. Anti-racist educators look at who's already centered in the curriculum that they are charged to teach. They look at the voices with a critical lens and say, who is excluded from this? Whose voices are not yet included? Who do I need to center? And how do I show up in such a way where I admit my bias, I admit my lens, and I commit to learning with my students, unlearning with my students so that I can challenge them to do the same. And here's one that's really, really important. Anti-racist educators move away from checklists. This is this is one of the most frustrating things about doing the work that I do. I with Liberation Lab, when I go into a school, I'm always seeking to put myself out of business. I literally say that in 
my discovery calls with with schools. I want equity, anti-racism. I want justice, educational justice. I want restorative practices, culturally responsive teaching. I want those things, those pillars of liberation lab to exist and breathe at your school without me. I will literally seek to put myself out of business in the sense that I don't want you to need me in order to get the job done. I want you to have the tools and resources at your disposal. But with that, I often get educators who want to ask or want me to tell them exactly what to do. Step one, do this. Step two, do that. Here is a checklist. Anti-racist education, anti-racist schooling can't be packaged or prescribed or arranged into this checklist, this rubric, this formula. Surely those things help us to understand some of our practices or some of the things that we should be doing, some of the things that should be key. But anti-racist educators understand that the work starts within themselves. You grapple with your own beliefs, your mindsets, your philosophies, your biases about the world, your education, and your students. I'll give you a for example. My one of the things that I'm working on with my team and the folks that I serve alongside is redoing our our discipline. What does a discipline referral look like? And what are some of the things that you need to do first? Now, some of the things that come up are classroom management issues. We're just not doing what we have to do to um, see the kind of behaviors we want to see in class. And kids will test that. At the same time, there are some educators who rely on the words disruptive, the words disrespectful, the words defiant. Defiant, excuse me. Those three D's, they rely on them to describe a set of behaviors that they're seeing in their classroom. That student is disruptive. That student is disrespectful. And don't get me wrong. I think that there are there are points and and issues that we can take with how students may communicate what they are communicating. But I also need us to understand two things. One. Typically, the teachers who have the biggest problems with respect are the ones who talk to kids any type of way. So how are you talking to kids? What respect level are you giving them? Or do you feel like children are to be seen and not heard? You know that in your classroom, right? Like if, if, if you have children coming into your classroom and the way that learning takes place in your classroom is that they are to be seated and silent and compliant, chances are you're probably not teaching. So. Not only that, but when we talk about this reliance on being or identifying things as as disrespectful, understand that those words have been coded for us to uh, blame, to victimize and oppress black and brown people. If our students have not been challenged to assimilate into whiteness, if they have not made that decision if they aren't doing things that are normed as white standards of doing things, those are the ones that we label defiant, disrespectful, and disruptive. That typically those words are coded words for the, the children who refuse to assimilate to whiteness. And we have to grapple with our allegiance to, our understanding of, I push my teachers to move away from that language. 
What are they doing that is disrespectful? What are they doing? That's the, give me something specific. So you must understand that the work begins with you. You must become conscious of the intentional and multiple ways that schools mirror society. You must recognize that schools are doing exactly what they've been built to do in this country. Exclude, silence, erase, promote white supremacy. There are parts of schooling that you must take a holistic approach to. That you must consider the dimensions of schooling through an anti-racist, anti-oppressive lens. Think about the demographics of staff. Think about how literally the person talking right now on this podcast represents 1.3% of the teaching force. Think about the fact that school leadership is filled with hurdles. Not only do you have to go get your master's, then you have to pay for your for the test. In New Jersey, that test is almost $500. Then after you take the test, you got to go through two years of mentorship. And then you have to pay your mentor a total of $2,500 to finally get your standard cert. To then apply to districts who may or may not hire you simply because of what you look like. And before I hear somebody saying, oh, you're just crying about your own this and that. Listen. Not only do I know people who have said the same thing, who have the same stories or things like that, I've literally been on an interview. I have conducted myself in a manner commensurate with the position. I have shown that I have the intellect, the capability to teach kids math and have been told by folks that the district didn't know that I knew in said district that I was, quote unquote, too black. What the hell does that mean? So think about this. School governance, school curriculum, special education, and the over documentation, the over recommendation of black and brown kids. Our teaching and learning practices, our definitions of academic and teacher success, professional development, school mission and vision statements, school network and district policies, school culture and approaches to discipline is a big one. We need to commit to continuously evolving, pushing back, studying and having a critical lens in how we understand these things. Not only that, but the allocations of resources and the budget. We'll think that things are properly funded if we don't understand how much harm has been done to black folks, particularly by schooling. Anti-racism is healing and love in action. This work is incomplete without the role of healing. Healers are people who remove harm and reduce the impact of violence. People who restore and repair. I love watching HGTV and shows shows that, that go in and do rehab on homes. I know I'm dating myself and getting old. It's quite all right. I've, I've accepted it. But one of the, the things I love about shows like Fixer Upper and things like that is they'll go in and they will see in homes that look just, they look demolished. They look like they're not... Uh, consistent with someone living in them 
and they will see the beauty in that home. They will know that the home didn't get that way itself, that it required someone with love and attention to see the beauty and restore the floors, to to rebuild and restore and renew. The greatest healers are the people who consider the whole person and get to the heart of the matter. Anti-racist educators understand that all forms of oppression are connected. And that it's not possible to care about racism and disregard the violence in sexism, classism, homophobia, and etc. So the call that rests on our shoulders is that we need to care for ourselves and create educational spaces that center healing. That center healing in our students' bodies. My hope, y'all, is that as we listen and challenge ourselves... That as we have been centering healing and humanity, that we would do the work within ourselves so it can become a reality in our schools. Your students deserve you to show up as your best self. Does that mean you're going to get it right all the time? Absolutely not. Does that mean that you are always going to say the right thing to your babies? Absolutely not. But that does not remove the call that rests on your shoulders to see the beauty, the brilliance and the creativity of your black and brown students and produce help to produce the genius that already exists there. And if you don't see the beauty, if you don't see the genius, if all you see are defiant, disrespectful and disruptive students, find another profession. Because our babies deserve better. Until next time. And next week. Let's keep pushing.